Today, Lower Manhattan residents seeking to escape the city in the hot summer months may head to the Hamptons or the Jersey Shore. But in the 1800s, Midtown Manhattan was the place to go for a quick getaway. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Between 1826 and 1833, the Mount Vernon Hotel on East 61st Street was the go-to place for New Yorkers looking to escape the hustle and bustle of the city, which at the time extended only as far north as 14th Street. The hotel's now a museum. Unfortunately, it's temporarily closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but its virtual doors are open. I recently talked with the museum's director, Terry Daly. Terry, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for having me. So what's the history of the Mount Vernon Hotel? There is a long and kind of twisted history to it. Um, so how far back should we go? Let's go um, all the way back. So Take it to the beginning. All the way back. <laughs> yeah. okay. uh, at the beginning. So the building was built in 1799. So it actually makes it one of the oldest buildings in Manhattan. Um, it was originally built as a carriage house to go along with a mansion and estate across the street. Um, there's a bed bath and beyond there now, but there used to be a 23 and a half acre estate there. And the land was originally owned by Abigail Adam Smith and her husband, Colonel William Stephen Smith, who served under George Washington in the Revolutionary War. They only had the property for a couple of years, they started to build the estate house. They ran into some financial difficulty and ultimately sold the property then to uh, William T. Robinson, who had made his money on the export-import trade in New York City. So he finished the estate house and he's the one that built our building as a carriage house, essentially a barn to go along with his estate. And the mansion house then went through a couple iterations. It was uh, the, actually the original Mount Vernon Hotel, a couple other day hotels, a boarding house, numerous things until it burned down in 1826. And at that point, a gentleman, Joseph Coleman Hart, decided that he would take advantage of this new kind of craze of day hotels and convert this carriage house into a day hotel. And so that's the period that we talk about, 1826 to 1833, when it was a quote-unquote day hotel. So what do you mean when you say day hotel, exactly? So it essentially was like a country resort. You have to keep in mind that the city was south of 14th Street at this point in time. And so 61st Street, where we're located, was very much in the country. And you had a rising middle class because New York City, after the opening of the Erie Canal, was becoming a commercial center. And these middle class New Yorkers were, of course, aspiring to be part of the middle class or at least partake in some of the activities that the, middle, that the upper class did. So, and they had a little bit of, of disposable income. So they would get out of the city for the day, much like us New Yorkers like to do and go up to the country and spend the day. And there were about 40 or 50 of these day hotels all along the coast of Manhattan, Staten Island, New Jersey, and we're the one that's left. I love the idea of Midtown Manhattan being the country. 
It is definitely an interesting concept, especially with the skyscrapers that are around us and the 59th Street Bridge. Yeah, it is, it is a, a, a little bit, bit shocking to think of it that way. You referenced an Adams earlier. Was there any connection to our founding father, John Adams? Well, Abigail Adams Smith is the daughter of John Adams. Okay, so there is a John Adams connection there. There so is, so slightly. So for those who've never seen the Mount Vernon Hotel, can you describe the structure? And you already did a little bit of its surroundings today, but what does it look like? So it's a two-story stone building. It's made out of Manhattan schist that was locally quarried. So if you're in Central Park and you see those huge outcroppings, that's a similar kind of stone to our building. And it sits kind of back from the street because the grid was put in after our building. Um, it's up on a hill because as the road, the grid system was put in and over time the roads were paved and graded and all of that, we kind of rose up so it's kind of easy to walk down the street and miss it, but um, there it sits up on the hill in between the different tall buildings. Um, it's about a block from the East River. Um, and since the FDR was put in on landfill, our building would have been much closer to the river at the time that it operated as a day hotel. So you have to kind of use your imagination to envision what that would be like but we're also right by the Esplanade, so you can actually walk all the way north along the Esplanade from our building. And what is the exact street location? So it's on East 61st Street between 1st and York, pretty much mid-block. What kinds of amenities would the hotel offer in its heyday? So a big thing would have been food, so there would have been pretty lavish meals, it was kind of middle-class New Yorkers introduction to fine dining. You really didn't have fancy restaurants yet. You might've had some taverns, but we're a little bit early for that. And the ladies would have been upstairs in the ladies parlor and the men would have stayed downstairs in the tavern room and the gentlemen's parlor. There weren't hard and fast rules about the men and the women having to be separated, but certainly, society's acceptance of what women in particular could do for leisure activities kind of led to that. So the men are downstairs drinking and playing cards and gambling and doing business. The ladies upstairs are reading and sewing and playing music. Although I do have to say that middle-class New Yorkers, New York women during this time period were starting to get involved in activism. So they weren't all just sitting up there having a cup of tea and just gossiping. I mean, there were, there were some charitable activities and some, some activism going on up there as well. There would have been lots of land around, beautiful gardens. So that would have been another reason that people would have come up to our space. We have a small garden, a backyard garden now that kind of represents that. So how would people have arrived? Would it have been on horse and buggy? They could have brought their own horse and buggy. There was also regular stage service up the Old Post Road. So it had specific times and stops. So it would have brought people up that way. And then also 
there was a dock at the end of 61st Street. So there was some ferry service that went from downtown all the way up as well. So you had a, a couple of options. How did the hotel advertise itself back in the day? It was in the newspaper. And we do have some of those ads at the museum. And it advertises itself as this you know, beautiful spot acceptable for families, you know, come to the country, have good food, you know, kind of what you would expect. Were there any notables that would have stayed at the Mount Vernon Hotel, visited there? I wish there were, there really were not. Um, one, we have a diary of James Stewart. So he's not a well-known name by any stretch of the imagination, but he has kind of an interesting past. He was from Scotland. He was involved in a duel where he did kill the other gentleman. He was acquitted of any wrongdoing, but it did not seem as if people were happy with that um, conclusion. And so he and his wife did flee Scotland. They came to America for three years and traveled around and he kept a diary. Um, they did a lot of traveling and so it's one source that we have that talks about someone who actually did stay and can give us some insight into that. The only other remotely famous person is the gentleman who did convert it from the carriage house to the Mount Vernon Hotel, uh, Joseph Coleman Hart. He wrote, he was a, a Renaissance man. He wrote a book called Miriam Coffin that in itself was not particularly famous but he talked about the whaling industry in Nantucket, where he was from. And as it goes, Herman Melville did use that as inspiration for Moby Dick. So there's about as much of a connection as we have with anyone famous. That's a pretty cool connection, nonetheless. We kind of like it. <laughs> so what is the primary story you like to tell at the museum? We talk about what life in early 19th century New York was like. So that's really our mission is to educate people on early New York, particularly the early 19th century, and make sure that that early American history is preserved and is accessible to everyone. So we talk about these middle-class New Yorkers, how they came to be. Uh, we talk a lot about um, different you know, things that were going on during that time period. So the Industrial Revolution, we like to talk about immigration, uh, about trade and commerce. Uh, we talk a lot about food because food history is really a great connector for people, regardless of where you're from or what your age is, you can always kind of identify with that. So we talk about that. Um, we do talk some about you know, different communities, the uh, African-American community and the abolition of slavery in New York just prior to, to the hotel's operation. Different fun habits. We, we talk about art a fair bit, um, lots of handicrafts and, you know, what people were making, what you could purchase versus what you were making. So lots of different stories. Let's get back to the food for a moment. What's an example of a really tasty 19th century treat? Well, I don't know how tasty it is, <laughs> but 
the one that we talk the most about is turtle soup. Hmm. And the turtles were imported from the Caribbean and then brought up to the markets that were located downtown. And it was a huge deal. You asked before about how the hotel advertised itself. And the newspapers would feature advertisements of when the shipments of turtles were coming in and then who was preparing soup and when it was offered. The taverns would say, you know, the shipment is coming in on Monday and we will be serving turtle soup on Tuesday at two o'clock. So it was a big deal. It was an, an onerous process to prepare turtles and the soup or the stew that you made from them. So it's not the kind of thing that you would really make at home. One of the cookbooks that I use as a main resource is Eliza Leslie's cookbook from the time period. She was probably the most popular cookbook author, American cookbook author of the time. And in her cookbook, she offers a recipe for mock turtle soup and says in there, do not attempt to make turtle soup at home, hire a chef or make the mock turtle soup. So, so I don't know, really know what it tastes like, but um, people certainly did make a big deal about it. Yeah, I'm not so sure I'd be willing to try that, but you know, I don't know about that. <laughs> so do you still have any of the original furnishings in the museum from the hotel? We do not. So just about everything in the museum is from, our collection dates were about 1800 to 1840. So it's, they're all of the period and carefully researched against inventories of other day hotels, as well as inventories of the wealthy, because again, the middle class wanted to be in space that was reminiscent of the wealthy. So, um, yeah, all the pieces from, from that period were lost. We do have two pieces in the collection from the family that bought the building after it stopped being a day hotel in 1833, the Toll family. So those were the only two pieces that were ever actually in the building from that earlier time here in the 19th century. What can you tell me about that family that purchased the building after it closed as a hotel? Toll was one of the first Central Parks commissioners. So he had you know, kind of a somewhat prominent civic presence in the city. He had two daughters that remained in the house for decades and decades um, up until the early 1900s when they finally moved out and, and sold the property. That's about all we know about them. Uh, we're doing a little bit of additional research on them at the moment, but, but that's kind of, the, but they were there for a long time. They were in the building for about 70 years. Wow. How many times did the building change hands after that? So after that, so the Toll family had it for that large chunk of time, then they sold it to Standard Gas and Light, which is the forerunner of Con Edison. And they didn't use the building for too much. They used it for storage. Mostly they wanted it for the property because they erected these giant gas tanks behind it. The city had them all over. It was how gas was, was stored during that period in time. And 
the building, in addition to being storage, for a while it was a soup kitchen, it was a tenement home, then it was rented by a woman who did colonial crafts there. And then in 1924, it was the Colonial Dames of America who purchased the building, basically saved it because it was really falling into disrepair. They are the first female patriotic society and their whole mission is preservation and education of American history. So they pretty much rescued it from the trash heap, used it for their own headquarters until 1939 when they opened it up to the public. So that's when we were first opened as a museum. And that was to coincide with the World's Fair that took place in Queens that year. And there was a whole push on historic places. That was one of the themes. The main theme was technology, but New York City was really trying to show off its city, obviously, and the history behind it. So that was when we officially opened to the public. What more can you tell me about the Colonial Dames of America as an organization? They were founded in 1890 and have, so they are the oldest female uh, preservation society in America, and they have chapters all over the country. They support preservation, again, all across the country. They have scholarships, they have book awards, and just really help promote and support American history. And their main headquarters is in the building right next to ours. We share property. And yeah, they're a great support and we work really well together. Is the building protected now? Does it have landmark status? Yes, it does have landmark status. It, um, since 1969, it's been landmarked by the city. That's great. So no possibility of demolition or no. rise there. No, it is safe. So what is happening now in the age of coronavirus? How are you operating? Yeah, virtually, like everyone else. Um, we pivoted pretty quickly and got programming up within a couple of weeks. So we were continuing with our lunchtime lectures and story time, which we typically do once a month. And now we are alternating Fridays. So one is a lunchtime lecture. It's a 30-minute lecture for adults. And then the opposite Friday is story time for children. So um, that's continuing and probably is going to continue for quite some time. Even when we are permitted to reopen, we know that a lot of our audience is not going to be able to, to come back. So we plan on continuing with that. And then we have, we put our, we were ready to launch a brand new exhibit um, within two weeks of being shut down. So we did get that up virtually, and it's actually a great place piece to have virtually because it's this gorgeous hand-sewn map of Manhattan that focuses on all the different immigrant communities. So that is up on the website, and there's different interviews and videos and activities that associate with it. And we've done a lot with schools. That, of course, has been always a major component of what we do is school field trips. So we've been doing a lot of those virtually as well as putting a lot of resources online. So like all museums, you know, all of our 
um, revenue has really evaporated. So trying to to make up for some of that. But um, yeah, we've got fun stuff up on Instagram now. We have Trivia Tuesday, What's It Wednesday, Foodie Friday, and Spanish Saturday. So there's always fun stuff up. You can you can learn how to weave if you go to our website. You can learn to make syllabub. Um, so all kinds of fun things there. Yeah, I was going to say you have a variety of how-tos on your website, including how to make syllabub. What is syllabub? Syllabub is, it's sort of a cross between dessert, whipped cream, and if you like, an alcoholic beverage. So, <laughs> um, kind of this strange concoction where uh, you, it's citrus and sugar and cream that you beat and it ends up separating. So it's kind of a fun chemistry project as well. You can watch it separate and it has kind of this liquid at the bottom and this layer of cream at top. And so you can make it non-alcoholic with just apple juice or cider, but it also was made with hard cider or wine. So, you know, whatever your taste preference is, but um, it's very unusual. It's kind of an acquired taste, but it's, it's really fun to make. It does require some elbow because you, if you want it, you obviously could use a hand mixer to do it, but in my estimation, that's cheating. So you really need to have a whisk and go at it. And that takes a good 10 or 15 minutes. So it's a good workout. Great. There's again, a whole bunch of how-tos on there. I'm going to try that syllabub. I think I might jump into that this weekend, Terry. It's very fun. We might, we might post Milk Punch as our next one. Another sort of chemistry experiment kind of beverage thing. So we'll see. Maybe in a couple of weeks we'll have that one up too. What are among the most common questions that visitors ask when they come to the hotel? Oh gosh. Um, well, we still get a lot of, didn't Abigail Adams live here? We get that a lot still. Um, or just the generic who lived here, we get that a lot. Um, how have you survived? That's a really popular one. You know, why, why wasn't it torn down? That we get a lot. Those are kind of the biggest ones. Everything else, it really depends on what the visitor is interested in. So, you know, some people are really interested in things like food and what people ate and where they got it from. Some people are really into furnishings, so they're interested about the Greek revival style that you see throughout the building. I asked you the question earlier, how did the hotel advertise in its heyday? How does it advertise in this heyday, in the modern age? In any inexpensive, <laughs> complimentary way we possibly can. So, you know, we do all of the online calendars. That's a great source for us. We, of course, have e-blasts that we send out all the time and have people signing up for that through our, our website and through visitors. We, have, we partner with different organizations in the city, uh, like the Sutton Conservancy or the uh, East Midtown Partnership. Of course, schools and senior centers will do a lot of direct outreach to them. Do you have mostly out-of-town visitors or do you have natives? 
from New York City who pop in? It's a mix. Um, I would say it actually leans a little bit more local, ever so slightly. But we get a wide range. We do get international visitors who have found us in a guidebook. And then we do have a pretty strong neighborhood community and then the greater New York community. So it, it's a, it is a, it's a very big mix. Is there an admission fee or is it, or is it a free museum? No, there is an admission fee. It's $8 for adults, $7 for seniors and students. So you're Children. taking quite a hit on that right now, of course. Right, exactly. So, I mean, everything we're doing at the moment is free with the exception of this murder mystery. Um, and uh, we're starting to do some private tours, kind of virtual tours, and kind of expand that way. Um, but, you know, like many museums, we're trying to figure out how we can monetize what we're doing just basically to survive. Yeah. Are you preparing for a reopening? And if so, what might that look like for you? We are, we've done a lot of thinking and outlining about it. Obviously we're still waiting for the city to give us the green light, which is going to be quite some time because um, museums and all entertainment are in the fourth wave. So once we get the green light, it's two weeks between every wave. So it's gonna still be a while. I think that we will be able to welcome guests for regular tours pretty easily. Even though we are a small building, we do tend to have small groups. And that's one of the things about being a small museum. So tours usually come in. I heard uh, some of the doctors talking about quarantines. And that, that's kind of what comes to visit us. So I think we'll be pretty easily able to have groups come in you know, small groups, family groups come in and, and still give them tours. And a lot of our programs are very small, intimate workshops. So we may move some of those outside to the garden to give people lots of space. What we're probably not going to be able to do is our big Halloween murder mystery, our holiday candlelight tours, some of those big events, which are actually our favorites and really you know, convey the, the building and the spirit in which it's supposed to be. But I think we're probably going to have to wait till after the first of the year before we can think about those kinds of things. But yeah. as long as the weather holds and we can make use of our garden, we may add some garden tours. We may add a walking tour of the neighborhood. So there are some ways that, that I think we'll be able to welcome visitors and still keep everyone safe and comfortable. I've been there for your holiday tour, so I'm eagerly anticipating that return. So fingers crossed for that this year, too, if that's possible. We'll see. That's actually my favorite thing of anything we do. It was the first thing I ever came to probably 20 some odd years ago. So um, hopefully it'll be back at some point. How can people get involved with the Mount Vernon Hotel and Garden if they'd like to? join one of our events online. So our, West, our website has all the Zoom content, all the login information. So you know, join us for an artist talk or a lunchtime lecture. Uh, we have our three virtual concerts coming up. 
So summer garden concerts for us have been something that we have been doing for decades. It's kind of a hallmark of the summer for us. And, and we obviously cannot do them in person this year. So we have moved them all online. So they start next Tuesday. So it's three Tuesdays every other Tuesday. We have a vocalist, um, a lutenist, and a, a harpist who will be playing. So we would love to have people join us for those. They are free. Um, donations will never be turned down, but they are technically free. Um, join us as a member, and your membership will start when we restart but it is a way to help support us now so that we can continue with our staff and keeping them on um, and connect with us on social media, share our events, tell people about us. I mean, there's lots of ways really to, to help promote the museum and we'd be grateful for all of it. Do you have a favorite room or a spot at the hotel that you like to frequent? I think my favorite is probably the ladies' parlor. It's the most beautiful room in the building. And so it is a great place to just kind of escape. There's something about the ladies' parlor and the pianoforte and the harp and just kind of envisioning what the women might have been doing. And in, in particular, knowing that they weren't just wallflowers, that there was some real work being done by them. And I think that's a misconception about early 19th century women. So I think that's probably my favorite room. All right, Terry, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Terry Daly is the director of the Mount Vernon Hotel Museum and Garden. Check them out online at mvhm.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>